Businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. Whether a business is delivering packages, treating patients, or running a global customer support center, their customers need them to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that Fortune 500 companies and startups alike trust to build seamless communication experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Really, the only limit becomes your developer's imaginations. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 212 of Greater Than Code. I am Christina, joined by Rain. Hi, Rain. Hi, Christina. Thank you. And I'm here with my friend, John Sowers. And I'm here with our guest, Veni Kunche. Veni is a coder, a maker, a founder, and a mom. After working as a software engineer for 15 years, she launched Diversify Tech to help make the tech industry inclusive. Diversify Tech connects underrepresented people in tech to opportunities, as well as helps companies hire them. Welcome to the show, Vinny. Thank you for having me. Start with the obvious question that we ask every guest, uh, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Uh, my superpower? Uh, I think my superpower is that I'm pretty adaptable uh, and I also don't give up. <laughs> uh, I think both of those combined are my superpowers. When I was growing up, my family, we moved around a lot, like not just cities, but like countries. I was born in India, but I grew up in Saudi Arabia. And then when I was in high school, we moved to the U.S. So it was quite different cultures that I kind of had to adapt to. So over time, just life experience had to learn to adapt. That's like a superhero superpower. I love it. Like adaptability. <laughs> I'm sure that served you well being in the tech industry, right? <laughs> Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, I think um, over the years, uh, adapting to new worker environments or programming languages or, you know, the new tech that we always constantly see in the tech industry. Yes, definitely. Um, and I'm also a, as an entrepreneur now uh, that has helped me kind of be okay with the uncertainty a little. <laughs> you may have made this transition from being a coder to being an entrepreneur. And I'm curious to like hear you talk about like what drove you to do that and, and what the what that transition looked like for you? As I worked in a software engineer, I worked for a long time and it felt like I didn't fit into the corporate world. So I kept changing my jobs quite often. So every two years, I kind of switched to a new job or, you know, I also did a master's. I was actually trying to get into bioinformatics. So I was just like, felt like I couldn't quite find my place uh, in the corporate world. And also, I also experienced a lot of toxic environments, which led to burnout over and over again. Um, and during one of those burnout periods it is when I was like, you know, I think I need to try something else. And I also didn't know, quite know how to progress in my career. I was at a point where I was a senior engineer, but beyond that, I didn't know what my career path was. And so it's like, you know, I want to try something else. So at that time, actually, like my husband and I, we were actually in grad school and he was part of a five-year program. I was part of a two-year program. After two years, I started working again. 
And then it took him, you know, a few more years. And I was the one who was working while he was in school. And as soon as he found a job, I was like, can we switch roles? Because I want to try something else. I'm going to think of it like as an independent study, trying to start a business. I'm going to learn what that would be like. I want to try things. So we, as soon as he found a job, we actually just kind of switched our roles into him working and me trying to see if I can, you know, make up my own program, <laughs> sort of, to study uh, how to run a business. So that's kind of what the transition was. Uh, at the beginning, it was very hard because obviously I didn't know what I was doing. It was a lot of uh, experimentation. I tried uh, I tried quite a few different ideas and none of them really worked out uh, because I think I wasn't quite working on things that I truly cared about or that I didn't know where to find my customers. Sometimes I may have had a good idea, but I just didn't have the network or the reach to, you know, find those customers. So it was a lot of experimentation. Uh, and then uh, eventually uh, I started Diversify Tech. Were all of your uh, ideas focused around diversity in tech or was this something that you hit upon at the end as something that really resonated for you? Uh, yeah, the beginning ones were not related to um, diversity at all. Uh, one was for a uh, tool for wedding planners. Uh, one was a tool for mobile app developers to create templates easily. Uh, so it was like quite a few different things like that I was familiar with, but wasn't quite sure where to reach my customers. Eventually, as I was trying to find something to work on, um, I was actually working with, uh, volunteering with Women Who Code. We ended up just mentoring a lot of women and things like that. And um, I'm pretty introverted, so I don't tend to go to a lot of events. Uh, I tend to do one-on-ones. So I used to do a lot of, a lot of like office hours with women. Uh, I used to just post my office hours and say, hey, if you want to chat about your career, uh, anything, if you want to get into tech, chat, just chat with me. And that's kind of how it started. And then I thought after that, I realized that a lot of the women were asking me very similar questions. So I thought, you know, one-on-one is not scalable. Uh, so the idea of a newsletter came to me and I actually started a newsletter called Code with Many, which was to encourage women to get into tech. So that was actually like the first iteration, I would say, before Diversified Tech. Through that, I learned a lot about like about tech and hiring and all of those sort of things, uh, which uh, led me to develop Diversified Tech. Excellent. And it sounds like that's, you know, not only something that uh, that you found a way to make financially successful, but something that also is is, is something you're quite passionate about. Yes, yes. Uh, it's definitely something that I've had that experience going, you know, being in tech, uh, being as a woman, being as a woman of color. And I actually used to work in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota, uh, which is very much uh, not diverse at all. <laughs> so I had to live in those kind of environments. Uh, so which led me to have kind of like have that kind of experience, which I wanted to share with more people. So it was something uh, that I could, you know, directly relate, relate to that definitely helped. I think we we follow each other on Twitter, yeah. and um, yeah, I've been following the like when you launched Diversify in Tech um, mm-hmm. a couple years ago. What I did notice is that recently you tweeted something about being very like protective and selective of the companies that you mm-hmm. let in to the the job board or that you work mm-hmm. with, right? Yeah. And I think that's important. It's an important point. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more, especially mm-hmm. with the influx of like diversity initiatives mm-hmm. and communities and and their kind of agendas and, and how they're incentivized. So yeah. yeah. 
so as I was saying, like before I started Diversify Tech, I was running a newsletter called Code with Many. Uh, I was doing that more as a volunteering thing, more as to help um, more women get into tech. As that newsletter got big, I actually started getting companies who wanted to sponsor me or wanted to promote their brand. At that time, I didn't quite understand the intricacies of, I guess, of what hiring and what uh, increasing diversity in a company meant. So at that time, I took on clients as they came up. Um, and one of the customers that came up, you know, they were they were very well known in the D.C. area and everything was going great. And I promoted their jobs uh, in my newsletter and so on. There was this one instant. What happened was a woman uh, was choosing between two jobs. And one of the jobs she chose was because I highlighted this company in my newsletter and she chose that job because it seemed like a great company, you know, all of that. And then about a few months later, I learned that it was actually not a very good environment. Uh, and there was, was a woman of color who chose this company because I promoted them, right? And that really, really hurt. <laughs> like, you know, like I, you know, I felt like I was, I caused this. Even, I know that, you know, the company is the one who was not being inclusive, was not supporting her. But at the same time, I felt like I was part of it. So that was like a really, you know, intense lesson for me that, you know, the, sometimes companies want to do the thing, right thing. The recruiter may want to do the right thing, but a lot of times they approach it from a branding perspective. So the first thing they want to do is make themselves seem like they're inclusive. Uh, and they start from that point onwards, and, but they may not have actually done anything internally to actually be inclusive. Uh, so that was like a big lesson that I learned. So that's why I'm very protective of the companies I bring in and because I, I don't want that to happen again. I don't want to be the person who, you know, promoted a company, a brand, and then somebody is hired and it ends up being a horrible place for them. You know, I was, you know, directly part of this, but I know that happens often. Like, you know, we think a brand is great and we promote them. And then a year later, we learned that, oh, there was, it was actually all marketing and branding, not actually a good place to work. So that's why I'm very particular now about, you know, who uh, gets on the job board. And, you know, I can't be 100% sure that it'll be a good place, but I make sure as much as I possibly can. So at least when people are, when underrepresented people are coming to our job board, at least I've done some of the work to make sure that we filter out at least the really bad companies. Yeah. This is the sort of pipeline and empties into a sewer problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you vet these companies? Because their whole thing is they're trying to look like the sort of company <laughs> that you should let put a job on your board. So you have to yeah. go beyond sort mm -hmm. of surface appearances. What do you do to try to do that? So one thing is um, when they first post a job, ask quite a few questions. So it kind of feels like they're filling out an application to get on the job board. So I ask them for their demographics. Uh, so I ask them how many people of uh, color are there? How many LGBTQ individuals are there? How many, you know, disabled folks are there? So I ask all of these questions. Honestly, the, that itself scares a lot of companies and they just don't go beyond that. Uh, and I also asked them, um, what are you doing? Uh, you similar to how, you know, companies ask candidates, why should we consider you? So I do the same thing to the companies, like, why should underrepresented people consider you? Uh, what are you doing in terms of making sure that you're supporting underrepresented people? So that's another question. That's the biggest filter that I have is to make sure that I'm filtering in companies that actually do care, that they actually take the time out to 
find this information, you know, that they've thought this through. Uh, and sometimes companies do come, look at all the questions, and they actually go back. I don't hear them, hear from them for quite some time because I think if they realize that, oh, I need to do some work <laughs> before I post this here. Uh, so a lot of times that happens. And another thing they do is after they do post, uh, I check on Glassdoor, which is, you know, sometimes it's very blatant. Like the first review that I see just a few weeks ago was the CEO is super sexist and, you know, racist. That has happened. And I just like point them to the Glassdoor that's, that's review. That's going to be a, a no from, from me. Yes. <laughs> so sometimes it's pretty like clear that they're not a good place, but they try, but they want to seem like they are. So you know, right away says, I'm sorry, I can't work with you. And other times, honestly, like they did all the right things. Glassdoor reviews look great. Sometimes they still come through. And at that time, what had, what's been happening is people from my community uh, reach out to me and, and say, hey, these I've worked for them before, or I have a friend who worked with them before, and they're actually not a good company. So sometimes, a few times that, that happens, and then I ask for how, as much feedback they're able to provide. I collect all of that information and I, you know, go to the company and say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't work with you. I refund their money and I give them all of the feedback that I've gotten so that they're aware that, you know, even if they're trying to appear a certain way, that people still talk. Um, so I give that the feedback. Um, yeah, some companies do take it and try to work on it internally. Some companies are, you know, they don't use my job board, but they go to some other <laughs> place to post have you thought about asking to talk to someone from an underrepresented background at the company? Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, that seems like it would give a really good signal. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, there are some downsides to that that I could see. Yeah, I've actually done that a few times. Sometimes something feels off about the company. Then I go find uh, previous empl- employers who are from reference groups. And uh, most of the time they respond pretty well and they give me feedback, you know, that either they're great or that they're not. Uh, so, But it's not scalable. So sometimes that's why I have to like pick, uh, which I'm like suspicious about, that I go do a little bit more digging. Yeah, I've done that and it's uh, been good to check. <laughs> I'm really interested in what are some changes that you've seen in hiring around diversity and inclusion since you've Mm -hmm. been running this business? Since I've been running. So I started this about two years ago and I was doing Code with Vinny um, about four years ago. It's uh, the change I've seen is that especially with the Black Lives Matter movement, more people are aware that there's a problem. So prior to that, it was, you know, just a few, it felt like just a few companies were uh, trying, but now it's gotten, even the smaller companies, like two-person companies, 30-person companies, they seem to be more aware of the issues and they are trying to do better right at the beginning. So that's something that I've noticed. And it's not only that the companies are trying to, I think the employees themselves are asking a lot more about it now. So internally, uh, they've had to kind of address that too, because other people are, are not willing to join unless they make diversity and inclusion a priority. I think people are uh, gotten more outspoken now, so companies are paying more attention to it. When I started about two years ago, you know, I was still trying to grow the company. At that time, I would get maybe, uh, you know, like 10, uh, 20 postings per month. Now I'm getting about 80 postings per month. So it's like a lot more people are seeking uh, something uh, and they're more proactive now instead of, you know, just letting things be. 
if I'm, let's say, a white dude, and I am a hiring manager, you know, a director or VP or something like that, and I want to post a job description on your board, mm-hmm. what are some things that I should do and what are some things that I should definitely not do? Things that I would do is, I think, start internally first to see what do the current employees think of the company or if, you know, uh, recently people have left, why have they left? You know, think assess in the things internally first and also kind of use metrics to kind of like uh, how many white men are there, how many uh, people of color are there, um, because how, how can you improve upon something if you don't measure it? So, so, you know, start internally. And then by the time people are ready to recruit. Uh, so for my job board, um, I can't quite help companies to work on like inclusion. I can't work them uh, like behind the scenes, but I hope that they've done that work. And then when they come to recruit uh, for the job description, for example, I, I have sometimes have to give feedback to the companies that because the job descriptions are just like a really, really long list of requirements that may not even be necessary for that role. So sometimes I have to, it's actually gotten way better. Like when first year, when people would post, I used to have, have to give feedback quite often on how the job description looks like nobody will like I would actually say things like I have 15 years of experience and I'm intimidated by this job description which is for like a you know mid-level role like I don't think you will find somebody who has all these requirements so you have to make sure that uh, either you don't have this long list or make sure to let people know that you know these are not requirements but these are some things we do and you know apply even if you did meet 100% of the requirements. And the other thing is to kind of figure out their interview process. Because one of the questions I ask is, what is your interview process? And uh, recently from my community, I've gotten feedback that, you know, just ask companies if they do whiteboard interviews, because if they do, I don't want to even want to go to the through their process. So I've actually set up guidelines saying that, you know, hey, if you do whiteboard interviews or if you do interviews in such a way that, it doesn't really relate to the job. I'm sorry, but this is not the place for you. Uh, so I kind of have started being upfront about it. So now com- companies are like rethinking their interview process a little bit too before they come and post. So yeah, look, think of the interview process too, because it, it could be a great company after you joined. But if you set up that first step of like trying to get into the companies, like doesn't even make sense for the role. You know, it's hard. And also because of the pandemic and everything, people are just so tired right now. They're mentally exhausted. And for them to go through these multiple interviews over and over again that are exhausting. So, yeah, a lot of internal first work, I would say, first. I I guess the the way I'm understanding that is that they need to have a strategy and Mm -hmm. to come to you as part of that strategy and not Mm -hmm. just say, Oh, if I put this job description on a board, I've done everything I need to, Mm -hmm. you know, problem solved, right? Yes, yes, exactly. You know, I can't help them with the issues that they have, but if they worked on it themselves and they, you know, they can use me as part of the, you know, once they're ready, they can use my job board as a way to reach more people that they may not be in their network. For interviewing companies to join, are you also asking them about like what processes they have in place to support entry level people? Well, like after they get hired, like mentorship mm-hmm. programs and other like apprenticeships and things like that, that can help those people, you mm-hmm. know, succeed at the company once they're in the door. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you know, I'm not Esther, but that's a very good question to add. Uh, I'm not Esther at this time. Right now, it's been a little bit of tr- a struggle for me to get companies to post entry-level roles, actually. Uh, that's why it didn't occur to me. But uh, one of the issues that I'm having and I'm trying to convince companies to actually hire entry-level folks because a lot of them want like mid-level, senior level, director level, but they're not actually letting anybody in at the beginning. Yeah, yeah but <laughs> how do you get those people, right? Yeah, yeah. They have to start somewhere. Yeah, so this, it's been a struggle to like, you know, how do you, exactly as you said, like how do you get people at the other levels if you don't even let them start? Just the past few weeks, I've been getting more entry-level and mid-level because I think I've been trying to get companies bring awareness to them that, you know, you have to also hire people at the entry level, not just at director level. This seems like it's a pandemic within the tech industry. (laughs) Like anything that touches technology, whether Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, information security, any area in tech, Mm -hmm. it's like the same issue, right? Mm -hmm. With the whole like entry level Mm -hmm. roles and not creating these type of positions and complaining about like a pipeline problem. Yes. Right. So it's like yeah, almost the, like self-imposed. Mm-hmm. The argument that I've heard is, well, if they're just going to leave in a year or two years, then why should I invest? You know, mm-hmm. why should our company invest so much in training them? Which I, th- I think is just silly because mm-hmm. they're choosing to leave your company. You yeah. have control over that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they think about it after the fact, like, okay, when employees are there, why, what can we do to support them? It's it's not that. It's more like recruit more people after people have left. You know, it's always like reacting to the situation rather than understanding what's going on. <laughs> Finding a new job is stressful. Uh, yes. It's not easy, right? Mm-hmm. And so leaving a job you have, there has to be a reason, you know? So you're not even doing like the bare minimum to make it com- like better than the alternative, which is risking your entire career and not having money for a month or whatever, you know, that's not actually hard, Mm -hmm. but you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. You know what I found interesting that you, uh, you mentioned that a lot of your startup friends don't understand why you just don't take the money that Mm -hmm. companies offer. And you notice that like your job board is judged by different standards as folks of color typically are right? Mm-hmm. Or f- folks that are other typically mm-hmm. are. Why is it so difficult, you think, for your friends to understand that you want to uphold that integrity versus just falling into like capitalism, right? Like, let me just take the money. I don't care what happens. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I feel like when you read startup books or how to start a business, it's all about getting more customers. It's all about getting more traffic. It's about money. Like all the metrics they use are, is all based on that. But I'm not sure how much people think about, you know, the customers you're serving because my customers are, you know, like underrepresented people in tech and also companies. And sometimes they're like opposing, you know, they, they may not value the same thing. So for me, it has so I have to balance it somehow. If I prioritize the companies, then it doesn't even make sense for me to do what I'm doing because my priority is always underrepresented people and like what is good for them, you know? So if I prioritize companies, you know, yes, I would make a lot more money and, you know, all of that. But then it, 
what I'm actually trying to do, it kind of becomes meaningless for me. Yes, I want as a business, I need to be sustainable too. So, you know, I need to make money and I need to be sustainable. But at the same time, it shouldn't come at the cost of like actually harming the community that I'm trying to support. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting um, because uh, so so in order in addition to the job board, I actually also have like a talent directory where I highlight underrepresented people in tech and. One of the things that's been that the advice that I've been getting is that I should charge people for this talent directory. And a lot of my startup friends have been giving me that advice. But what's been happening with the talent directory is if I charge for it, I have to prioritize the people who are paying, right? So that is companies. And companies don't want actually want to hire under entry level folks. They want to hire like really senior level folks and things like that. But I wanted to prioritize my community, and my community is a mix of entry-level folks, uh, senior-level folks, and, you know, so many. So what I've decided to do is that I will highlight people in my community, and I actually have another newsletter for companies, which is free, and I highlight everybody, anybody who wants to be highlighted will be highlighted, and I will share them with all the recruiters on my list. So that, I feel like, serves my community the best. If I started charging companies for it, it doesn't make sense because then they might demand more, a different sort of thing. And then also it restricts the recruiters who may not have a budget. And I want underrepresented people to be like more highlighted and I want uh, more companies to look at them. So yeah, so it's like because I'm like two sided, I have to like balance it out that it's best for both groups, uh, not just for one group. This business is bootstrapped, right? It's not VC funded. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I think that's a big part of why they don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, it is. It is nice to kind of not have any external forces kind of deciding what is best for the business. And because I am part of the minority group, I kind of understand the benefit for the company rather than some outside party, you know, who may not quite understand it. And you can also take, you know, a five or 10 year view without requiring massive infusions of cash every six months to get there. Yes. I found it really interesting that, you know, you sharing how much you crossed in revenue per month, right, Mm -hmm. for your business, elicited kind of some interesting comments or Mm -hmm. maybe some envy because Mm -hmm. folks assuming that it happened really fast. And, you know, I'd love for you to to talk about that because I feel like with social media, Mm -hmm. people assume that every success is like happened overnight, whether you're Mm -hmm. building a business, whether you got that dream role, Mm -hmm. um, whether you're on like, you know, a fantastic podcast, whatever the case may be, Mm -hmm. it just, there's this perception that it's overnight when it's like, uh, Mm -hmm. no, I've been here 22 years, right? Mm -hmm. Or I've been doing this, or you've been staying up late while, you know, Mm -hmm. taking care of your family every night for the past like 10 years trying Mm -hmm. to build this and now you're seeing the fruits of of your labor so can you talk about like how that makes you feel and if you have Mm -hmm. like conflicting thoughts about Mm -hmm. it and i mean what you would recommend it's an overnight success if that night took (laughs) seven years (laughs) which to be fair is kind of how i feel now (laughs) all the time I mean, it is like March day 555. So it's like, <laughs> what is time, right? Yeah. Exactly. yeah, it's it's been interesting. Like, I was very, um, actually very hesitant to st- share uh, how much I was making. 
I'm part of a community of uh, entrepreneurs and we're, they're always sharing and it's like 90% men that the community that I'm part of and they're very comfortable sharing and they do Twitter threads on it but I always felt hesitant to share because of the business that I'm building whenever it's uh, something related to a social cause people think that it should be a non-profit or they think that I should do it because it's a good thing to do. I shouldn't do it for the money. You know, there's like that thing that people think. But for me, um, as somebody who has volunteered at nonprofits, I was I very much wanted something that would be good uh, for my community, but at the same time will also sustain me because if it doesn't sustain me, I won't be able to do this for very long. So th- that was something as I started a business, I, that was something that I needed, you know, I need money to live, right? We all do. So even though that's the case, uh, when it comes to a social cause, people think it should be a nonprofit and, you know, that money shouldn't be a priority. Uh, so that was one uh, hesitation I had of sharing. Uh, but eventually I shared uh, on Twitter that, you know, I'm making uh, this much money and so on. And it, it was uh, like 90% of the response was positive. People were very happy for me because people were part of my newsletter from like 2014 since COVID-20. So they've been part of my journey. So a lot of folks are very happy um, that, you know, I've, I've crossed this milestone. However, a um, few people like emailed me and said, hey, I, I'm doing something similar, but I'm uh, it's not going anywhere, and I'm very, you know, I'm envious that, you know, you're doing so well. <laughs> you know, those were the exact words that they said. And I just felt like I honestly felt hurt because it was also somebody who was underrepresented. I was like, I felt hurt that, you know, why am I doing well? Why is he doing well, right? But that was my initial reaction. But then I thought I didn't share my journey for very long. I shared it only after I crossed this year, uh, milestone. But yeah, it's a lot of mixed feelings. Like I feel bad for them. But at the same time, I it didn't happen overnight for me either. Like as I was saying, like I was trying to start a business since 2013, 2014. That was when I was, you know, it's been a long time. The time I spent to learn how to start a business and all of that. And over time, I learned a lot of things and I grew my communities. All of that just took a long time. Uh, it's not like I just, it just, you know, I started a job board and people started posting jobs. It, it wasn't like that. It was like I built the communities. I had to build relationships. Uh, it, yeah, it took a long time. So yeah, my advice is like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to compare their journeys with others. Uh, and I feel like that's very, really, uh, can cause a lot of harm because uh, you don't know what the other person is going through. Like when I was starting a business too, I also used to feel envious of other folks who reached their milestone faster. Uh, whereas I was, you know, going through so many things. And after a while, I was like, you know, this is not right. Like, you know, every business is different. Every person is different. All of our what we're going through is different. So all of our timelines are going to be different. And also our resources, what we have access to is different. So a whole lot of things have to come in place um, for things to work out. So I think it's good to have that awareness that your journey is kind of your journey and, you know, eventually things will work out. So it causes more harm, I feel like, when you compare to uh, other folks' journeys. I always like to tell people, don't compare your beginnings to anybody mm-hmm. else's middle, right? Yeah. And that yeah. was a quote I read online a couple of years, of years ago. Yeah. Because, yeah, like you say, there's it's so nuanced, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a one-to-one comparison. Mm-hmm. And um, even if you're not an entrepreneur, right, like if mm-hmm. you're just whatever in in whatever aspect of your life like just appreciate your journey 
you know, every time you feel that envy or that like, oh, why are they, you know, they, I feel like they're incompetent. I'm better than them. That's mm-hmm. your ego talking. Just take like five steps back <laughs> and, you know, kind of put it in check. Right. And say yeah. like, Hey, no, got to appreciate my journey. So that's really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's also important to note that speaking publicly about crossing a threshold like that is great to have that information out in the world, like that it's possible to have uh, an organization that does so much good for people and that has the backs of the people that are underrepresented and and can still be financially sustainable. Like that, that's a very important thing to know can happen. Yeah, yeah, honestly, that was part of the reason I shared it too, because I knew a lot of other underrepresented people who are also like who follow me, who are also trying to start their business, and I wanted to show them that, you know, doing good can be sustainable. Like you can make money and it can be sustainable too. That's one of the reasons I wanted to share. You know what you said at the beginning of of this episode really resonated. I'm still thinking about it. Right, like you talked about, you felt like you couldn't find your place. You know, Mm -hmm. you did grad school, um, you kind of bumped into many toxic work environments, which Mm -hmm. subsequently led to burnout, Mm -hmm. and you felt stuck in your career progression. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, like, why is Venny, like, telling my business to the world? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but it it really did resonate. And I think that there are more of us Mm -hmm. that feel like that or that have felt like that at some mm-hmm. point and we've been just kind of so scared to take an action so that's one of like my reflections right that I've always felt alone in that thinking or like oh maybe I should just be a little bit more thankful uh, that I am in the position that I am in mm-hmm. and feel less like upset about not finding my place and and like being more introspective because people always say like if it continues to be a problem maybe you should look at yourself but then I realized that it's, you know, speaking with folks like you and, and, and seeing your journey, it's like, yeah, no, it's not me. There mm-hmm. is something there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just have to take a step back and maybe pivot in another direction to find your true path. Do you think you would ever go back to like traditional work environment? Would that ever be an option for you? At this time, I want to say I don't think so, but you know, you never know. You never know what life brings. Um, but I hope I, you know, hope things uh, continue to grow as they are, and hopefully, I can keep doing this. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned is that you don't want to let some company put up a crappy job description. And then view their failure to hire someone as Mm -hmm. a pipeline problem or Mm -hmm. you you don't want their lack of expertise in hiring these people to reflect poorly on those people. Yeah, that's that's been um, a struggle for me to convey that to companies because sometimes when companies, if it's the first time that they have heard of Diversify Tech, uh, they come and ask me, what is the ROI, you know? How many applicants am I going to get? How many, how many, um, people have, companies have hired from you? And usually I respond back and say, you know, it's much more complicated than that. It depends on, you know, the job description you write, your interview process. You know, there's a lot going on just posting a job and just uh, candidates applying, especially in my communities. I feel like, uh, as Christina and I was mentioning, like we've gone through like a lot of toxic environments, so we're much more selective uh, of the companies that we apply to, I feel like. So 
So I kind of explained to them that, you know, it it, ha- it comes from a lot from you, like, you know, your job description, who your um, what your current environment is like, your interview process, especially. Um, so, that, yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's hard to um, explain, but that, yeah, that's kind of what I have to convey. Yeah, it seems like the way. So to tell me if, if this makes sense to you you your goal for this business is to serve underrepresented people Mm -hmm. and you want to make money to the extent that you're serving them well Mm -hmm. so like all of the incentives in your business you want to align around Mm -hmm. what you're doing for those people and not necessarily what you're doing for the companies Mm -hmm. if you do well by the people you're trying to help you'll also do well by the companies Mm -hmm. yes Yes, definitely. And it's been interesting because when I first started, when I made the, you know, job form like really long, asking all of, uh, at the beginning, it was an experimentation. I wasn't sure if companies would actually give this information, but I was pleasantly surprised as more and more companies started sharing all of this information. And the side effect, as you were saying, like that has happened is that because I highlight companies that are showing that they're putting in the effort, um, my community likes that. And when their companies are hiring, they refer me to their companies. So it's been like, because I hold the job board to strict standards, like that helps my community have more trust in me. And then they go refer companies, which has been, you know, you know, g- getting people to post on the job board. So yeah, it's something that I have to like constantly maintain, uh, because, you know, I can make one big mistake and that, and I would lose trust in my, com- my community would lose trust in me. So I have to like, you know, be on top of it kind of. <laughs> I wonder to what extent the people who don't understand some of your decisions for the business, they can't wrap their heads around your values. Yeah, at the beginning of the year, I think there was a company who posted a role, you know, and everything looked fine. And I shared it in one of my communities. And somebody who worked there said, you know, the, you know, a lot of people actually left uh, this company because it's not, you know, a lot of underrepresented left because it's not good. And then the, that lady was nice enough to give all the feedback, and I provided all the feedback. And then they came back and said, I want to appeal your decision, <laughs> and I had to be a little bit firm uh, because I didn't think they quite understood that they have issues internally. You know, they just wanted to recruit people. They didn't quite make the connection of people leaving their company. But at this time, it's gotten to a point where I think those kind of companies are filtered out right at the beginning. As soon as they see uh, all of the questions I ask, they are not able to answer those questions. So they kind of like filter themselves out. That's a great way of, of reducing your workload and the amount of, you know, fluff that you have to filter out mm-hmm. before you go through there. Just if, if, if they're not willing to do the work or if they haven't already done mm-hmm. the work, that's yeah. your separate. So that's, that's everybody wins in that situation because then, like, you don't, you have less work to do and, the, you know, those companies mm-hmm. don't sneak through into the, into the listings. Along with the job form, I've been working on like guidelines. I'm having people read those guidelines before they post. So I say things like, you know, if you're doing whiteboard interviews, we're not the right fit for you. If you are, if you, yeah, things like that. I ask, uh, I mentioned several things like my job board is mainly for us folks. So I just let them know up front. So I'm just give, making them go through all of my guidelines first before they post so that, you know, if we're not the right fit, they kind of figure that out themselves. Yeah, what I really like about what you're building here, especially as you get more and more successful and more and more companies, you know, realize the the value of, of being listed on your job board, like you're 
positively influencing their internal cultures and, and like what they're paying attention to and how they're writing their job listings and how they're doing their interviews. Like they're seeing like your requirements for that and, and making those changes. And I think that's an incredibly powerful thing to be able to lean on because it's, it's, you know, as so many of us have been seeing how these are hiring these days and, being frustrated at how poorly they're doing it. It's, it's, it's great to see uh, you having that kind of influence. Do you feel like there's a, a next step up in, in uh, the kind of influence you would like to be able to uh, wield over companies and their hiring processes? The main thing I would like um, is for companies to hire more entry level folks uh, because my my community there are a lot of folks, uh, especially with the pandemic. Um, you know, a lot of people you know took time to go through boot camps, or you know, there are lots of folks who are just trying to find their first entry into tech. And for some people, it's you know it's been over a year since they graduated from a boot camp or their college, and yeah, and it's really tough out there, especially with. The, the competition uh, due to the pandemic it's um, yeah it's hard and I think companies do really need to realize if they invest in folks at the beginning of their careers they you know and work on their retention they you know they'll have great employees who would stick with them for a while because you know they were the first ones to support and that's kind of what happened with me too like when I first was looking for my first job you know, even though I had a degree in computer science and, you know, I thought I had all the right, you know, um, qualifications, it took me a very long time to find my first job. And when I finally did, when somebody gave me a job, I, I stuck with them for a long time. And then I even went back to them because I knew they were, you know, a good place uh, for me. Uh, so, yeah, companies need to, like, think more long term, I think, like, if you support folks from the beginning they will stick around and through word of mouth that you know that they're a good place you know all of that you know can have an effect I, i'm asking this question very selfishly because i'm i'm in the process of trying to build out a program at my company to pr basically prepare the whole like the whole department for having junior developers come in mm -hmm. right because right now we're only hiring seniors and, and that's a problem but we also have to be ready for juniors to come mm -hmm. in before they get here otherwise yeah. it's terrible for so I'm wondering if you have insights into the sorts of things that companies can do to pave the way. Yeah, yeah. And my last job before I, I quit and started Diversify Tech, we, uh, I was working with a company where we had actually just hired a whole lot of junior developers. And one of my last tasks as I left the company was my boss asked me like to kind of give him feedback <laughs> on what he could do better. And one of the things I did was chatted with all of our junior developers um, and ask them, you know, what is working, what is not working. And uh, some of the feedback they gave me was that they wanted more mentorship and mentorship in a way that was um, adaptable, I guess. Like when they're first starting out, they wanted somebody to show them around the company, uh, about the people, about the project. And once they're put on a project, they wanted somebody who was familiar with the project to kind of like guide them, um, help them through with it. Uh, they wanted some, you know, some person that they could go to and ask questions. Uh, one of the issues they were having was that they were, you know, there were a lot of senior developers who were all friendly uh, and they were all, you know, they all, they liked us, but they just didn't know who to approach. Uh, so they wanted right at the beginning, like, um, 
like a mentorship, uh, depending on the situation. And another thing they all emphasized was documentation. When they first started, they didn't know, uh, you know, there's so much that you can ask <laughs> and get information was they wanted to go somewhere and just kind of like read through, get to know our project, get to know, um, you know, our guidelines, like how how do we use GitHub? How do we, what are the best practices that the company um, wants us to follow? So they wanted more direction. Um, I think before our company our, was very small team and as we were growing, we weren't doing enough uh, knowledge sharing. So people just knew things and they were working with things they knew. So as new people came in, they were kind of a little lost. Yeah, I would say like highlighting like good documentation before you get people on board and, uh, you know, very intentional mentorship to help them navigate their first year or so. Thank you. Have you ever thought about partnering with DNI consultants to sort of provide like a package deal to corporations that are really like trying to make a, you know, a mm -hmm. big investment to sort of Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you know, they can help internally to put in like the structures in place to make it mm -hmm. work and you can help them, you know, come up with the job descriptions mm -hmm. and, and use your expertise there. Yeah. Uh, you know, some, someone else mentioned the same um, idea to me and I've been thinking about it, but uh, right now the hard thing for me is that I'm doing all of this mostly myself. Uh, so I just don't have the bandwidth uh, to coordinate something like that. And the other thing is that it's been hard for me to find people who are that strict, I guess, in terms of DNI. It's been hard to find people with the same values as me. Uh, so for example, like I don't accept companies who where ICE is their client, for example. But where the whereas other DNI clients uh, may be okay with that, you know, consultants, they might be okay with that. So it's been very hard to find <laughs> people that have the right values that I can work with. Uh, but the main main reason I haven't explored it is because I just don't have the bandwidth. So aside from greater emphasis and availability of entry-level positions and the sort of greater company culture around, you know, bringing in juniors, like if you could wave a magic wand for like the industry to change, what, what like thing would you want to see? I think I'd like companies to focus on putting their employees first. That seems like an obvious thing, but uh, I feel like a lot of companies are not doing that quite especially when it comes to diversity and inclusion it feels like they start from the branding and marketing department you know they start from how do we appear that we're inclusive instead of starting from the employees themselves i feel like companies need to like listen to their existing employees first so i feel like the priorities the shift should be on the employee existing employees first and then go from there yeah i think that ties in with what you were saying uh, earlier about like when you get information about a company from say a former employee or even a current employee who's in an upper underrepresented group like that information you know is better than any other information mm -hmm. coming out of the company as far as what it's really like there and yeah. being able to get that perspective on a company is incredibly valuable because even the, like as you said, even the company might be ignorant to that sort of thing because they're just not asking, they're not aware mm -hmm. of attention, and mm -hmm. so like they think everything's going great. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think if you like, we all get caught up in just doing the work, so we just 
try to get through day to day, but not really reflecting on how is everyone feeling, how how are people doing. Yeah, I feel like yeah, companies need to reflect more. That does raise an interesting question, which is that I think companies are in actually a difficult position when trying to gather information about how they're doing from that perspective. Like there may be a lot of people with a lot of strong opinions, but mm-hmm. they're afraid for their jobs. They're not yeah. going to accurately you know, report. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I, that's definitely the case. Um, as I mentioned, like in my last company, when I talked to uh, my coworkers, you know, no one thought to bring all of that up by themselves because they were just busy doing their work and they were trying to manage um, uh, until I went and asked them, they hadn't even thought about it, you know, to make their work life easier. They didn't even think about it. Um, I mean, yeah, I feel like need to create an environment where it's the employees feel okay to speak up, uh, which is, which is definitely hard. And another thing to look at is when people leave, uh, you know, ask them why they're leaving and, Sometimes it's um, like when I have left companies, you know, I was not truly honest of why I was leaving because I felt like, oh, I need their recommendation for my next job. So I'm not going to say anything uh, that might cause a rift. Uh, but it also depends on how you ask, I think. Uh, so if you ask somebody in a way that where you seem like you want feedback, that you want to improve so that we share something that we're we can work on um look so coming from like we want to be better instead of oh i think everything was great uh you know is there something you know that we can do uh, you know yeah i think the way you ask and create that environment can also have an effect i think that ties in a little bit with the earlier you know point about the the company culture where if people are afraid for their jobs they're <laughs> and so then the company itself is ignorant about like the actual working condition and and it's sort of a, a self-perpetuating system right if you don't mm-hmm. think it's change you're not changing anything yeah. and nobody's telling you that things need to change because because it's so mm-hmm. unhelpful and like until you get to the point where you can develop that trust with the employees like you're not going to start getting that feedback and so it's like like the company has to develop itself to the point where they can receive feedback mm-hmm. and then they're going to receive the feedback and then then they can start making those changes but getting mm-hmm. to that point is so tough because like yeah. building trust is a slow process it's mm-hmm. not something you can just mm-hmm. kick in when you when you say oh that's right we should have our employees trust us mm-hmm. you know if somebody does fee- take give feedback to actually take that feedback and change like in the past and the companies that i've been part of they may have asked for feedback, taken the feedback, and, you know, nothing has happened after that. So I think you can, another way to build trust is to actually listen and make that change. Like like for my job board, um, people, you know, when, when if I do have somebody, some company who is toxic, people tell me and I take immediate action. Like, you know, I don't doubt what they're telling me, I just, okay, you, t- you tell me that they're not good. Okay, I believe you, and I'm just going to change, make a change. Me just doing that, I didn't think uh, as a big deal. But as soon as I do it under ups and, like, the people I talk to are like, oh, wow, thank you so much for listening. You know, it's like they, it doesn't happen in their life very often where people take their feedback seriously and do something about it. So it's like the bar, I feel like, is, you know, somewhat low too because nobody's actually doing anything to make change so like to listen and make a simple change can um, increase the trust too 
like I, I start wishing that we had some sort of way where like companies could get accurate pictures of themselves from anonymized reports mm-hmm. and, and potential employees can get accurate you know, like look at the internal culture of a place before they decide mm-hmm. to interview somewhere mm-hmm. you're you're providing that service a little bit right by just the fact that a company is listed on your board there there is some of that which is incredibly valuable but I'm continuously hoping that we could have something like that scale to the entire industry. Yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to tap it for sure. <laughs> One of the interesting things about, you know, whether people are speaking up at work about their conditions, you know, uh, specifically related to, you know, how they're treated as minoritized, you know, members of a minoritized group and things like mm-hmm. that is that there has been a lot of study of this um, employee dissent in general. A lot of it has been under the sort of label of whistleblowing, mm. but uh, this has been studied in the study of high reliability organizations, which is the study of places like aircraft carriers and firefighters mm. and park rangers, you know, people with high risk jobs that somehow don't have a lot of failures. Mm-hmm. So what the research says is that organizations where employee dissent is allowed Mm-hmm. where it happens at all, are more likely to be high-reliability organizations. Mm. One thing you can say is that if no one in your organization is complaining about this stuff, yeah. then you, your organization isn't performing as well in general mm. as it could be. Yeah, that's very true. So I, I think that exploring sort of how specific organizations handle employee dissent mm-hmm. can tell you a lot about how they treat people. Mm-hmm. in general as well sort of the foundation from where it all starts right if you if you don't get to the point where they can dissent publicly then there's already a deficit there i mean what are the chances that no one in your organization has anything to dissent about right yeah. Yeah. and so actually where you're not seeing that in an organization is mm-hmm. telling you where people are lacking the psychological safety they need to mm-hmm. take that interpersonal risk. Mm-hmm. And so if you see an organization that says, no, no one complains to us about diversity, mm-hmm. what you now know is yeah. that they're not doing good <laughs> at, at diversity. <laughs> so we've come to the portion of our show where we go into reflections, which are each of us talking about the ideas that we've discussed today that were particularly impactful or novel or the things that we're going to be thinking about afterwards. And I think for me, uh, it's, really pointing to like the critical role that organizations like yours, Venny, has have created by placing yourself in such a trusted position between job seekers and companies by being that like stand up, you know, strong values organization that can protect the minorities and, and the underrepresented minorities from, you know, the companies that just want to hire whomever to look better or just want to hire period. Uh, you know, it's incredibly valuable to have that. And I certainly hope that you can continue growing and, and find ways to scale the work beyond your, your personal to-do list, (laughs) (laughs) ever the challenge of the entrepreneur. Um, but just how, like what an important role that plays in, in the overall technology industry. And I'm hoping that that can continue to be something that everyone's paying for. I think that all of the work that you've done to develop these rubrics or even intuitions about which companies are worth working with 
and which companies will, you know, treat the people that they eventually hire well and things like that are this expertise that you've developed is extremely important. Also for the people who are thinking about going to work at these companies. If a lot of underrepresented people had your expertise in sussing out toxic organizations, mm -hmm. I think they could end up in better situations. And so I guess my reflection is if there is a way that you can share this expertise mm -hmm. that you've developed with the people who need it, I think that could be extremely powerful. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, and thought about sharing that. Yeah. Uh, I've been uh, coming with, up with it as I go. <laughs> But yeah, that, that's a great idea. Well, one of the ways that you can know someone is an expert is when they can do something very well, but not know how they're doing it. <laughs> Yes, as, as you were saying, expert, I was like, I don't feel like an expert in that. Um, but yeah, but I, I, I mean, you're probably one of the like world experts in sussing out <laughs> companies with toxic DNI cultures. Like, think about it. You know, who else would be better at that than you? That's literally like an important part of your job. Yep, yep, <laughs> it is. <laughs> I'd say my takeaway, I think I, I really liked your point, Swain, about how comfortable candidates, employees feel um, within the organization about, you know, how, what you were talking about dissent. And I, I, I didn't know anything about that before. Um, I think it would be uh, good for me to kind of, um, as you had suggested, to kind of talk, chat with more with DNI consultants who know the internal part of it. I haven't had too much experience um, chatting with people like that who have more expertise in, you know, how do you create safe environments for people within the company? I think that'd be really good, good for me to learn more about that. Awesome. I'm glad I said anything that was helpful at all. No, that was really helpful. <laughs> I act as somebody like on the outside, so I don't have a full picture what goes on within the companies besides my own working experience so yeah that's that, that, those are really good points thank you this was great i'm really glad i got a chance to talk to you today yeah thank you so much for having me this was great um i'm not done a conversation like this before so it was interesting <laughs> thank you <laughs> that occurred to me earlier i forgot to mention was like it like if a company comes in and is saying oh yeah we don't do whiteboard interviews like our, our interview process is great mm -hmm. um but then you've got some of your candidates that go through and find out yeah. that it is like that like they can feed that information to you and be like they said it was blah, blah, blah. and yeah, you can yeah. like that's really useful to be able to feed that back immediately mm -hmm. into the process so um you can just cut that company off yeah yeah Yeah, um, I actually had something similar happening right now where a company shared a whole bunch of posts and I shared it with the community that I'm part of. And somebody said, hey, I just interviewed them three months ago and their interview process was terrible. And then she gave me, I was like, well, what was terrible about it? And yeah, she basically shared what all went on. So I'm collecting it and I'm going to give it to them now. Um, but yeah, it seems like a good place to be in after you're in the company, but their interview process is, is not great for underrepresented people. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's been interesting because I feel like not many folks are on the candidate side, it seems like. So it's like been interesting to kind of be somebody who was in that position to be the middleman, sort of. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. <laughs>